Welcome into another episode of Debate Night. We're back after a one-week hiatus. Uh, Hunter and I were away last week at College Nationals. If you haven't checked that out, you can go to the PDGA YouTube channel and check out that coverage. Uh, we also have a bunch of stuff on our social channels surrounding that. But we're back with Debate Night. We've got a great cast today. We have a bunch of different subjects today. It's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, a, a few related to the, the recent Music City Open, but um, quite a few that are just kind of popped into my head and some of the patreons even suggested so shout out to the heiser club um we got a great cast today uh, as always we've got brody smith in the house oh. can't do worse than last weekend <laughs> we'll see we'll see the gorge is you know it's well, there's only tough. four people here so you can only get fourth place oh you're talking about on debate night you're talking about music city oh, open oh Yikes. no i'm not uh hunter's also here hockey? come on <laughs> i'm just going for a podium here top three okay very lofty goal uh we've also got jonah joining us again Quick shout out to Team UCF, who were recently at College Nationals. And then I'm up against a dog of a cast today, so I'm just going to do my best today. It's kind of just a goal. Do, the, do my best. That's all I can do. And Did you just give a shout out to a team for just being at a tournament? I mean, they had they to they earn qual- a bid. They, they qualified three years in a row. Okay? You got to qualify. Oh. Yeah. All right. Goodness gracious. And then we also have <laughs> our other three-time, uh, Dustin is back. Indeed. Hello. <laughs> salutations you're looking nice today trevor thank you thank you double g jerky hat <laughs> shout out um all right so we're gonna we're gonna start it off with uh a topic that was inspired by uh brody's tour life podcast with yuli if you haven't checked out the tour life podcast make sure to do that and and he recently got the white whale of guests in ken climo the champ uh very fascinating guest always a very interesting guy to to listen to talk to about disc golf and you know, it's it inspired this question, which I think has been debated quite a bit, but I wanted to get it on the show, and that is, would a prime Ken Climo be competitive on today's tour? Now, I'm going to go ahead and add in the assumption that we're talking about Ken Climo's game from when he was back in the day, you know, his game, but he could have modern discs. We'll allow that because, I mean, he would have modern discs. So that's, that's kind of the assumptions I would allow to draw here, um, but would he be able to be competitive with his game on today's tour? It's definitely a hot topic. Brody, you talk no. to me himself. What do you think? That's no. it? Um, if those are the only assumptions you're giving me, then the answer is no. If you, if I can add an assumption that Ken Climo was born at the same time as, you know, the people that are competitive currently, that like he is in his prime at this state, but he's gone up through the ranks at the same time then I would say yes. But it, just his game itself, I don't know if his game would be able to convert completely like it ha- uh, like with what his skill talent is. If you notice this year on tour, for example, the people that are very one-trick pony, if you will, right? Dominant backhand players, dominant forehand players, haven't been succeeding too well. The courses are getting to the point where you need to have multiple shots. You need to have multiple skill sets. And that's why I think just with where his game was, I don't think the courses require that. Again, I'm probably the worst person to ask this, but just from the little footage I have seen and from hearing what people talked about courses in the past were versus courses now, I, I think the answer is no. But if you give me the assumption of that he was born in 1985, than 1,000% yet. Okay. Okay, Hunter, do you think so? 
I mean, I have to agree with Brody's point that uh, if Ken Klima wasn't the player he was back then at all, but instead could relearn all of the skills and tools and become a completely different player, then yeah, <laughs> maybe he had a shot. But if we're just going Ken Klima in his prime, that was around 2003 or 2007, based on ratings. Uh, I found some footage of 2007 Memorial, which I thought was probably the best comparison to modern day you know, courses because like Memorial back then to Memorial now hasn't changed that much. So let's just look at it there. He shot three rounds out there, 169 total. But this year's Memorial, they only played two rounds at Fountain. So we'll take Climo's best two rounds from that event. And that puts him at 110. That 110 would have had him in approximately 50th place through two rounds and 17 strokes behind Gannon Burr through two rounds. So even with the course maybe being a little harder back then, didn't really look like it. Still an obvious no, but some people might try to use ratings. So the counter to the ratings argument is in Climo in 2007 was 1044 rated. The best player in the world right now is 1046 rated. Um... And if you're going to use ratings, you'd have to assume that over the last three to four years, players have on the top end of the field has on average gotten about two to three strokes worse, which hasn't happened. And if you look at 2007 tournament and tell me with a straight face that Calvin Heimberg wasn't absolutely annihilating the other 1044 rated players back then, you're lying to yourself. So no, not a chance. Not not a great scene for the old heads so far. Uh, Jonah, you have... For Hunter to use a ratings argument is just total blasphemy, so I'm just going to call you out on that really fast. <laughs> Um, yeah, I said if you I want suppose... to use a ratings argument and throw it in your face. <laughs> but you went ahead and used like half your time for it anyway. Whatever, we're moving on. Uh, I mean, <laughs> bottom line, Kenny is like the most consistent player. Back, like if you watch coverage of him, like he always hit fairways, knew his lines, knew his game, stayed within his game, which a lot of players today do not do. And I, that's like the same reason why Matty O is so consistent on tour. He's, he hits his lines, he makes putts. He's not the most competitive with the forehand. But, you know, he keeps it in there. And I think if Kenny were, you know, still on tour today, he would be able to develop before him because he knew that's what it meant to compete out there. Um, I mean, does that mean he's like a top 10 player in the world right now? No, but we've seen people outside the top 10 consistently win on tour all the time. You know, Isaac Robinson last year kind of came in out of nowhere, won Idlewild with virtually no forehand. Um, I mean, Jim Conrad won a, a, world, a world title two years ago virtually no forehand so i think if kenny is willing to develop beforehand specifically he is the most consistent player out there he knows his disc super well he kept a super small bag which i mean there's no even if he decided to include some new molds in there he wouldn't change too much he has a ton of like old casey rocks and t-birds and you know wraiths that he just threw all over the place and maybe even bring some older molds back that people forgot about so I mean, there's okay. a reason why this guy is on half the end of the molds Hey, I mean, you're right about that. Okay, so Jonah thinks the right course might might provide a chance for Kenny. Dustin, do you agree? Uh, I mean, I think it depends on what you mean by competitive, right? Because, I mean, Scott Stokely was not in his prime at all, and he still managed to catch in some events last year on the Disc Golf Pro Tour. So if you want to call that competitive, that's one way to go about it. But if you're talking about being like a top 10 guy who can actually contend for titles, I think the one thing you have to look at first for Climo is he obviously has the mental game, and he obviously knows how to win and has the killer instinct. I mean, this is evident based on how much he won, right? I mean, the, the, the 12 world titles, the five USDGCs. He had 220 MPO wins in general across his career. So clearly the guy has the mentality and the killer instinct to win. Um, I also think his putting and, and stuff like that would still translate. I think his ability to shape shots is going to translate, which means he's going to still be able to excel on like reasonably linked par threes and in the woods and things of that nature. I think the question would really come down to A, the, the ability to develop beforehand or at least like a serviceable one. And then B, the distance like factor, like would he be able to attack more sizable par threes or, or, or bigger par fours and par fives? 
And I feel like if he's in his physical prime, I think it's certainly possible. I mean, I think uh, Innova had him listed at 6'3 with a 6'8 wingspan. And apparently he was able to throw a star wraith 573 feet. And even on the tour life show, when he was talking to, to Yuli and, and uh, Brody here, he mentioned that he was able to throw like some of his mid ranges, like well over 400 feet and stuff like that. So he had some distance already. Um, so if he can just like adapt to the new disc technology and just kind of like to some of the new courses we have, I think he has like the mental fortitude, the drive, you know, the dedication. If he could focus on disc golf full time, you know, with the salary and all that jazz, I think, yeah, he could be competitive on some courses. Yeah, I, it's an interesting argument. I like you brought up St Scott Stokely. I think that's a pretty good tidbit there because, you know, Scott was not as good as Climo back then. He is outside of, well outside of his athletic prime, and he's still playing thousand rated golf in today's world. And, you know, was able to do, you know, he's, he's able to play some relatively impressive golf. And, and like I said, not as good as Climo, and he's like 50 some years old. So, do you have a counterpoint to that? Oh, the sidearm hunter? I was saying Stokely has a sidearm. He does. But everyone's point was Climo would have to develop something that he doesn't have in his team. Yeah, but I, I do I do agree uh, kind of with Jonah's point that like we've seen dominant backhand players be successful. You know, Kenny did it have distance on what you potential. Mean by competitive. Yeah, that's that's like I mean that to me like competitive is not like you know like playing the way Calvin Heimberg's playing right now, which is like podium podiuming every event. Like competitive in today's day and age is you know consistently you know making top twenties. You know, yeah. staying in bounds. You know, hitting lines. I think, and yeah, he, I, he yeah. wouldn't consistently make top 20s. Tough to say. Tough to say. We'll, I we'll, said it. we'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. It is an interesting one. And I think, um, I think we're going to have Hunter and Kenny, you know, go head to head at some point. And, oh, uh, he would smack me around. <laughs> I can't make top 20. No, no, no. In an argument about if he I, would compete in today's era, I want to see that. I actually have no idea where I stand on that. I just think it's fun to put out those hypotheticals because it's very, I mean, it's the same in every sport. It's, it's the Jordan LeBron. That one's a little different. Um, it's the, the Gretzky NHL argument. I feel like it's probably a little bit closer because the sport has changed a lot since oh, then. I was just going to add the thing that kind of sucks is, you know, those sports, it's a lot more, you know, uh, of a hypothetical because of the competition they're going up against because it is literally a one V one where this golf is you versus the course. Sure. The courses have changed so much drastically that it's difficult to be like, well, yeah, Kenny shot a 60 at Northwoods Black, and the best score that's ever happened in the last five years is a 62. Like, Kenny was yeah. an absolute monster. You know, we can't do those comparisons. Sure. Yeah. It, it, which is hopefully, I, mean, I went to the memorial. The hopefully, late, AI, late course. hopefully, AI yeah. gets far enough, you know, that, that we'll the be able to run point, these simulations. And, gave. and that'll go. be good. He also might have just had a bad tournament, though. Um, okay. Nice. So quick, all right. Well, quick, quick points update heading into the next subject. Uh, Brody at 204, Jonah at three, and Dustin at four. Uh, this next topic was kind of inspired uh, a little bit of a tangent off of this topic, kind of thinking about how course pars used to be a little bit lower. Now they've started to raise higher. We're seeing more par fours and fives. Um, and, you know, golf has kind of settled on some pretty classical setups for what a golf par looks like. You're typically, you know, par 72 is the most common. You see 73, 72, or 71s and 70s. Um, you know, you kind of see the very classic setup is two par threes and two par fours on the front and back a lot of times. Like, there's a bit of a, a classic setup. And my question is, what is the ideal par for a pro-level disc golf course, um, or is there one at all, 
Um, how, what kind of mix of par threes, fours, and fives should we see? Uh, should par sixes ever be considered? Uh, that's kind of the question here. Hunter, go ahead and lead off for us. Yeah, I think that around a par 68 is kind of ideal for disc golf with some give both ways because you got to take what the property gives you. But par 68 would kind of line up in my head is nine par fours, two par fives, and seven par threes. I think at least three of those par threes, a round three of those par threes, should be a quote unquote must get, with one being an island hole late in the round to kind of provide some separation. Par fours and fives, I think, though, are where disc golf really thrives as the difficulty in disc golf comes from driving and not putting. So I think the par fours and fives need to be long enough to challenge the top end of the field to have to use at least a fairway into the green. Um, because if you have, you know, soft par fours and stuff where you're going distance driver and then mid or putter in, that's not really that difficult. Um, I think that's kind of where our separation should go, as well as a few long par threes where you have to be hitting a distance driver or a fairway hard off the tee. Par sixes, I don't think that should be considered because putting's easy in disc golf. So you got to think that a par six would basically mean it's going to take four very good shots to make a birdie. And requiring four very good shots for a birdie just doesn't really make sense to me when you're going to run into a hole a few holes later that probably is like a 200-foot putter shot and you got a birdie. I think birdies should all be kind of somewhat similar in difficulty, and a par six just doesn't really make sense. Okay. All right. Jonah, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think the special thing about disc golf is that every course is so unique and so different, and that's why, like, the pars vary, like, so widely across every course around the country. And so I think we should definitely keep an element of that to keep the integrity of the sport and, like, keep what makes disc golf unique. Uh, that being said, I definitely agree with Hunter in like a 64 to 68 range in terms of pro courses, uh, yeah, like around nine par four, six par threes, three par five, something like something in that range. And like, yeah, like unlike ball golf, there's a lot of disc golf courses where elevation change is a huge part of the course design. And so having a longer course with like more than nine par fours or like something around that, it's just going to be too taxing on the players, even if it's a pro level course. Um, and then like in terms of the par six argument, like you can't tell me hole 12 in Northwood Black isn't a par six. There's no argument to say it's a par five. And if you say it's a par five, that's just, it's not like, it consistently averages around seven every year on tour. Could you imagine if like anybody else was trying to play it? So, I mean, that's just kind of up in the air at this point, but I think regardless, like definitely keep me to a range, like to increase the uniqueness of every course. Yeah, certainly. It's certainly one thing that disc golf does have. Dustin, what do you think? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I don't think we need par sixes in disc golf. I don't see the need for a whole new level of par that we don't already see in disc golf or traditional golf. I think if it ever comes down to that point, that comes down the whole design where you need to be making some type of adjustment in order to get it within the confines of a par four or par five. And to my knowledge, the only hole that people seem to argue about being a par six is hole 12 at Northwest Black, as Jonah mentioned. And that's that's very small amount of holes then that we, we need to be considering a par six. So I just think that that whole idea kind of needs to go out the window. And as far as, like, just what an ideal par is, I mean, I think it really just depends on the overall hole difficulty and, like, just the diversity of courses throughout the course of a season. Because, obviously, we know that all par threes and par fours and such are not created equal, and it really comes down to, like, the level of shot shaping that's required, what obstacles are along the way to, to get to fairways or in the fairways, how well the greens are guarded, things of that nature. And so I think as long as we're testing, like, the highest and most diverse skill sets of disc golf, it's fine to have variance in par across the season. The numbers have been mentioned already kind of by a couple of the other guys here. I think I looked at the schedule from last year. The lowest par was 60 and the highest par was around 68. So that gives you an average of about 64 to 66 on the course par. So that's probably a pretty decent sweet spot. Uh, again, though, for me, it's not necessarily about the number. It's more about the diversity uh, of the holes and, and how it challenges players and things of that nature as opposed to like just the number itself doesn't mean much to me. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, Brody, what do you think? I might need an extension on this question. Okay. This is a good, this is a good one. Okay. So to go a little bit with against what Jonah said about um, needing the uniqueness of pars from courses to courses. Again, like I get the unique, I, I get that that is unique to disc golf, but if it's not bringing anything to it, then I don't understand why we should have that. If it's not like, if, if someone, if someone's tuning in because one week it's a par 55 and the next week it's par 65, I would love to know who that person is. I don't think there's anyone out there. I don't think they care. I think having consistent par pars across actual courses on tour and even off tour would actually help people. You could actually discuss with someone, hey, I went out today and played blah, blah, blah and shot a 65. And they instantly can know par is around 68, 69, 70 or whatever. And that was a good score. The issue that we have is we don't have multiple tee pads on a lot of these courses, right? So if you go out and you say you shot a, I don't even know what the par, see, that's the thing. I don't even know what the par is at MVP. I have no idea. Does anyone know? Nope. That, that's a problem. Uh, but let's say the par was 65. If I told you guys, hey, I went out and shot a 60, your first question is going to be what? What is the par? Okay, well, what, if you knew the par was 65, your first question is going to probably be what, what tees did you play? Yeah. Like what tees did you play from? And now we can have a discussion. If I said I played from the tips, now you know that was really impressive versus I said I played from the, the reds or the fronts, right? So I think that's ma that, that matters. Uh, Jonah, taxing on the players. An average golf course is like 7,000 yards. That's 21,000 feet of walking of just the course. They're playing four rounds. They do all have paid caddies. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, like we a long course, course on tour is 10,000 feet. Also, disc golf courses are known to have tees and baskets really close together. So that's true. It's not. It's taxing on the players. Come on, uh, Northwoods Black. That is a par five. You can't really look at average score there because again, the tour is not very deep, top to bottom. So the people that are getting tens and elevens on that hole are increasing the average. I'm with Hunter. I think six. I actually had 68 on the number. Seven par threes, eight par fours, three par fives. Um, obviously, those can guy get shifted a little bit depending on the actual layout of the course. But for me, I think when you add more fours and fives in versus threes, it makes it one the better player is going to win because there's more shots involved. If you're having to throw more shots, the better player is going to win. And then two, as long as those par fours and par fives are constructed not in like just straight shots because that's where we get in trouble is when there's a par four that if you throw 500 feet, you have a 300 foot upshot. But if you throw a, you shank it and you throw 400 feet. Now you just have to throw another 400 foot shot. I like fours and fives where if you don't have the right distance off the tee, if you don't land in the landing zone, you're pinched and you don't actually have a good angle into the green. That's I think how you have to construct fours and fives moving forward or have to have trees. Those okay. are your, those are I think you have a really good point there. I, I agree in a sense with Jonah talking about like there is, it is cool that disc golf has the, the idea of like, you can go play courses that are really heavy par threes because the par three in disc golf is diff a little different than the par three in golf. Um, I'm not so talking I, about courses off now, tour though. Hey, let me finish my point. 
The point I know, was, but you were starting to say second part, part of my point was, but for courses too. on tour, I do agree that having a consistent par is obviously what's best for the competitive side. And you do make an excellent point in the sense that in golf, if I tell you I shot a 68, you know that's a good score immediately. It. If I say yeah. a 68 in disc golf, if I was at New London, great score. If I was at Peaks View, horrendous score. So like there is, there is definitely a jump there. Um, so I, I can see it both ways, and I do agree. Like around, and really around. quickly, just to like cor like kind of modify my statement. From earlier, I wasn't saying like they need to be like a par fifty four and a par seventy. Like definitely like in a range of like sixty four to sixty eight. Like you said, like, mm. but that doesn't mean that every course has to be a sixty eight. Yeah, well, like, yeah, even in golf, I agree even, with that. Even in golf, you see you you see that sixty nine to seventy three. I think is really the range you're going to see just about anywhere. Um, and, and I think that ma that makes sense because like, you know, within a, a variation of four strokes, it's not like that crazy of a disconnect. Um, okay. So away from some of those crazy questions, we'll kind of get back to another one like that towards the end here, but we're going to, we're getting close to the first major of the year, the champions cup. Uh, I think a lot of people probably have their ideas about who might win the FPO division this year, um, seeing as the way things have been going. Um, but Brody, you, you made a face, but I think Kristen Tatar is going to be, if you had to put money, I think. No, it would no, be no. Kristen I'm saying, Tatar. I think she, she kind of proved that this past week. Right. I think before okay. this past week. I would have, yeah, I would have said the same thing. Um, Dinata was not there, though. Let's just make it clear. She was not at Music City to think Open. About. Um, but think the MPO about. division going into Champions Cup, very much in the air. You now have Chris Dickerson had a decent tournament at Music City, the returning champion. Um, Calvin Heiberg playing out of his mind right now. He has won in this course before. Um, I believe it was Hall of Fame Classic back in the day. Um, so there are a lot of players to consider. So my question is, who is the front winner to win the Champions Cup in the MPO division? Jonah, what do you think? Dustin and I are talking about this um, pre-shoot, and the, there's only one answer, and it's Calvin Heimberg. I mean, he has to be the favorite going to the event the way he's playing right now. Leading the fairway, and just some stats really fast, leading the fairway, and fairway hit circle one in regulation, circle two in regulation, birdie percentage, six in OB rate, only 21 combined bogeys on the entire year. If you do the math, that's less than two per round, which is super important, especially at Jackson. So, but I mean, that's just kind of what he does every year. That being said, the main thing that's made the difference a lot this year is his circle two putting has increased significantly up to 39% so far this year. And he hasn't finished outside the podium. That's like kind of Kristen Sitar level from last year, if you think about it. So, I mean, uh, he, like Trevor said, he also won, you know, the Hall of Classic in 2019. against Adam Hammes in a epic, epic playoff. If you want to go watch that coverage, go to YouTube. It's out there and it's amazing. Um, but yeah, like that is absolutely like Vinny's course. He shreds. You know, in those like low, uh, low ceiling, super far wood shots that you know, a lot are really difficult to maintain accuracy on those level of courses. So I think, uh, I mean, aside from him being my favorite player, uh, there's no other reason like not to root for him. T tough to argue against Vinny right now, Dustin. Do you have anything yeah. else? Or, yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother trying to argue against Vinny right now because I mean he really has been the cream of the crop this year and he's always been a very consistent player. I feel like he's been a consistent top five guy for a while now. Um he currently is sitting number one in the point standings by almost hundred points clear of the next person on the list. Uh he already has two titles this year. Uh, LVC and Texas States. Now, obviously, Texas States was a silver event, but there was still around 10 top 20 players, so it's still a really strong field and still a pretty solid win. Uh, as Joan already mentioned, he's yet to place outside of the top three, um, you know, getting some third-place finishes at Waco and Austin to go along with his two wins. Uh, 
as kind of already Jonah was mentioning, he does lead the way, field in fairway hits at 83%, circle one regulation at 51%, and circle two regulation at 75%. He's also birdieing more than half the holes that he plays. Um, and he's in top three for C2 putting and near the top five for the OB rate. Uh, another interesting thing about him is that he actually was first in strokes gained putting at MCO in Texas States. And he's always been in or near the top 10 in strokes gained T to green so far this season. So the guy just has a complete game. He's performing at an insanely high level on a consistent basis. And one other thing I'm going to throw in as like a little bonus is the eye test tells me that he has increased his forehand game this year. Like, I don't know if y'all have noticed this, but it's not to say that he didn't have one before, but I feel like this year it's been a lot stronger than it has been in the past. And so you add that to like the already strong game that he had before of like the accurate, powerful backhands, the putting, you know, the, 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 the smooth play and like the, the mental fortitude. Yeah, I mean, I think that this guy's definitely a front runner. Yeah, I agree with the forehand. I have been noticing that a lot. Um, Brody, who do you got? Yeah, I think Calvin's obviously the low-hanging fruit here. That's pretty much the the given. Um, the one thing that's interesting is we have yet to play on a course that is at all similar to Champions. Not a single course this year that will require the shots that champions cup will so just looking based off of this year uh, yeah you can kind of see who's putting well because that obviously translate from courses to course but i'm going back to the 2022 results and i'm looking at what happened last year there you have dickerson who kind of just was super consistent all all every round played great out there you have ricky wysocki who got second and then heimberg ellis and burr all in the top five Corey Ellis really hasn't done too much this year. Uh, obviously, Gannon Burr has. So to me, I feel like it's going to probably be Dickerson, Heinberg, and Burr as the the favorites coming into it. But yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if if Calvin pulled pulled off the his first major win. Certainly, Hunter. You going with everybody else, or you got something different? No, look, Calvin Heimberg, Gannon Burr, Ricky Wysocki, Paul McBeth, boring, 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 boring. Everyone and their mom thinks those people are winning, which means they're not. That <laughs> Jeremy Combs put it the best on Twitter here, and I'm going to quote him. He said, last season, after Simon's second-place finish, he won two in a row. Next tournament's champion cup, so if history repeats itself, Simon wins its first major. Uh, and another, so point one, Simon. Point two. Another thing, Simon Lazat rolled into New London, local course that historically people who have performed well at New London go right on to perform very well at WR Jackson. Case in point, Gavin Babcock last year. You don't really hear about him too, too much. Where was he? In contention at Champions Cup from Battle for Bedford. Now, Simon Lazat, he rolls into town, plays it blind, shoots a nine under par. You might be thinking, well, Hunter, he didn't perform that well at Champions Cup last year. Well, let me ask you, what was, what, what was Champions Cup to him? Oh, it was his second event on tour, and he just had a month break, and he was just starting his tour? What happened after that? He got a lot of momentum. He went sixth, second, first, first. He wasn't playing Champions Cup with momentum. Guess what he is this year? Playing Champions Cup with momentum. Everyone's looking at all these stats, blah, 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 blah. Simon Lazat, he's got the game. He's got the gyro that has extra glide, goes farther <laughs> down fairways. He's got everything he needs to oh take it down. God. I mean, use a casual round score as a I, reference. I mean, I'm convincing. Like, I still this? can't wait to see what happens to those uh, gyro dismania discs. I, I will say that it is convincing the idea that like last year Champions Cup, he hadn't really got on it, got himself going yet, 
And, you know, now he goes and, you know, we know he can shape lines. You know, we saw him win at MVP. I, that is probably somebody that people might be overlooking. I, I actually really like that point. I and, had him uh, in my top three. The, like, the, I, I do think the new London there. stat connection with Babcock. I don't even think about that. That is you fascinating. Gotta, you got to go outside the lines. You can't just look at the U-disc uh, stats, man. You got to use experience. <laughs> I, I liked I liked those points. That was that was solid. Um, All right. We're going to get in. We have a little points update here. Brody at eight right now. Hunter at 11. Jonah at nine. And Dustin at 12. Heading into our last topic. Uh, this one's near and dear to my heart. Um, we recently just had the Masters take place on the PGA Tour. Every year this comes around. And first you start hearing those like little chimey, like slow music commercials start popping up with really simple text. And you get real hype about that. And it's just like a tradition unlike any other, which is like the most ridiculously amazing statement ever to make about an event. And then pretty soon social media becomes consumed with people talking about all these myths and crazy traditions that happen at the Masters and all these like weird things they have going on that are like so sacred to that tournament. Um, basically, they've just created something, uh, obviously over a lot of time, that is so incredibly special in that sport. And it brings people in that don't even care about golf. People will watch the Masters that do not care about golf. That's that's a real thing that happens. And, you know, obviously any sport, particularly a sport like disc golf that mirrors golf in a lot of ways, would want to develop tradition like this. You know, we want 100 years to now to have a tradition unlike any other in disc golf. So my question is, what are some aspects of the event that the Pro Tour could and should implement into their majors to set events on a trajectory for similar prestige, to get ourselves on that trajectory. Obviously, we're not going to be there in five years, but you got to start somewhere. What could we implement, Dustin? Yeah, so this is tough for me because I'm not a golf guy, so you're going to have to bear with me a little bit. I'm not, like, super crazy about the Masters and all that jazz. But I do feel like we already have a couple of cool traditions in the sport. Uh, like, for example, people jumping in the pond at Maple Hill uh, after a win there. Um, you know, some of the trophies that collect names over the years. Like, I think there's that one rocket, like Texas States or whatever, at that one course that everyone's name kind of gets, like, drawn on that has won there. So we have some traditions like that. So I think, obviously, preserving those are, are important. But if we're going back to Masters, obviously the big thing that sticks out always is the green jacket, right? And the history and prestige of that item. And so it would be cool at one of our majors to have something similar to this where, you know, something gets presented that's, like, very, you know, recognizable to that event, and it gets presented by, like, past winners and everything like that. Obviously, we don't just, like, carbon copy the jack. I think that would be kind of tacky, but we could kind of find our own thing, I think, that uh, we, we could pass on the players, stuff like that. Uh, also, one thing I know they do at Masters is that whole, like, par 3 contest, where it's, like, a little nine-hole par 3, and it just allows, like, a mingling of like past winners and current top players to kind of be able to play together in a way that's like, you know, kind of fun, but still something that everyone can enjoy. And I think having something like that in disc golf could be cool where it could be some type of technical, you know, nine holes, short holes where the older guys don't need elite distance to be able to play it. And it can still come down to uh, like shot shaping just to have that fun competition and camaraderie amongst like, you know, past major winners and current major winners. Um, and then there's that whole champion's dinner thing where the previous champ chooses like the menu or something like that. I think that's kind of cool, but that's like kind of more private to the players. Like the public's not really involved in that so much, but maybe like, you know, if you win a major, you get to decide something about the next major, like something like aesthetic about it or something like that. Not something that actually impacts the integrity of the game. So I think we could definitely come up with some pretty cool stuff. We already have some cool stuff, but we can certainly add to it. Those are some good additions. I, I really like the champion's dinner. I've always liked it. And, and people do say like, 
oh well like what's you know what's the point in doing that now like there's only been this many winners or whatever like there but like you gotta you gotta start these things eventually and and i do think the green jacket is also a big part of things because it is so recognizable um and very iconic um brody what do you think what about the plaid jacket rbc yeah. hair well who did it wasn't it like week? ledgestone one year that did it did a jacket hunter no pro tour did a or pro tour did a jacket a silver rain jacket it was interesting Bright silver like it was very interesting silver. yeah <laughs> yeah so just to kind of jump on what dustin said a little bit the jacket for sure it for like the casual fan is like oh they get a green jacket everyone knows that but the champion's dinner is actually the thing that adds value to just the green jacket. Like the, the fact that you now have a dinner where everyone there has won a green jacket and you have that special. Th I think that's what it really boils down to is it's hard for fans to really appreciate something or think something is special or prestigious if the players don't that i think at the end of the day is the most important thing so this was something i think one of you guys had asked me maybe the first year or second year that i got into disc golf we were talking about majors and the topic was like do you do you feel different do you feel is there anything like you're at worlds is it mm. and i'm like no from a like from a player's perspective it doesn't feel any different than an elite event silver event and I think that is Winthrop has that a little bit because it's the same course. So you're like coming back to it, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not the best to try to figure out how you make that feel special, but that I think is ultimately the thing is the players care so much about that tournament and so much about Augusta and so much about everything that it encompasses. And that really shines through to the fans mm. And it's trying to figure out how do you do that in disc golf. I yeah, I do think I think yeah, that's a good point because I think it starts inwardly sometimes where you have to start with making the players feel so special that they're just going to talk nonstop about things, and then you kind of work your way out, and that gets to the fans because it's true. I mean, I mean Augusta is so sacred you can't even play that course even as a like there are like Gary Player was just talking the other day about like what it takes to play that course even as a former champion, and it's not even that easy to get on that course. It, there are some crazy stipulations. Yeah, um, like I, I mean, I, I almost got my car stuck in the mud leaving the players' parking lot last week. <laughs> so I mean, that's, I mean, that's tradition. This is where that's I mean, I'm just saying that's where it we're at like right any now. Other. I'm like any kids. other. <laughs> yeah, watching, watching, like uh, who was it? It was um, crap. I can't remember. Was it Kyle Klein? It was someone, and they were like pushing their van to try to get it. Oh no, it was Corey uh, Connor O'Reilly. It was like pushing his van to get it out of the mud. It was like. This is the best warm-up I've ever had. And I was like, <laughs> let's go play some disc golf, baby. All right, Hunter, what do you think about it? I think the answer is twofold. I think exclusivity and merch. Disc golfers are going to hate the answer I'm about to give. So <laughs> Winthrop Gold is probably the closest that we have out there because when someone says, hey, I've played Winthrop, you're always met with, well, where the rope's up. And people like watching players do things that they can't do in sports in general and i think that also applies to playing the course as brody just said he was i think he was this close to getting it as he just said part of what makes the masters so special is basically nobody gets to play that course even pros so this adds to the prestige and mystery surrounding the event when you're a rookie and you get to play on the masters you walk on and you're so excited yes you're playing the masters but you're playing on augusta 
And that rolls over to fans, to where fans care about that course. Fans care about the merch. Now, this is the merch side. The merch side right now in disc golf, we have Ledgestone. We have all these things. We're leading up to the event. There's tour fundraisers going on, and everyone and their mom can buy it. Masters merch, the official Masters merch, is only at that event, which then makes the fans who are there, like, I want to go to the Masters just because I want to buy one of those sick crew necks, and I'm not buying it secondhand. So it makes a prestige of, even as a fan, I feel special going there because I now have a chance to get stuff that I can't get anywhere else. That's also something disc golf's not doing. So, A, I think we need a course that you can't play unless you're playing the event or previous champion, very hard to play. And B, make it very memorable for the fans when they get there to show everyone, hey, look what I just did. Very good point. Very good point. Making it exclusive for the fans, also a quick way to help the prestige. Um, I think yeah, Masters, correct me, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Brody, but is there a lottery to get Masters tickets that you have to enter? Like, yes. be able to buy them? Yeah. So, like, Very hard to get tickets. Right. So, like, that's another aspect. That's what I'm saying, man. Got to create the demand for that grounds. first. But, <laughs> um, all right, Jonah, we what do you We should do that. We should only like let 20 people at USDDC <laughs> and make the tickets really hard. Uh, all right. Um, maybe not yet. Uh, Jonah, what do you think? Wrap it up for us. All right. I got six ones to make up, so here goes nothing. <laughs> okay. Um, so, firstly, shout out to John Ron. That guy definitely deserves a Masters win. But Dude, that's a in... proper shout out, Jonah. There you go. <laughs> See, I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. All right. Anyhow. <laughs> but yeah, before an event can become prestigious, it has to have two things, right? It has to have history and it has to have a good purse. Now, if the, that is what is going to incentivize the players to go to that event, care about it, and come back the next year. I think that's what we all kind of went around. That's kind of bottom line. These, these events have to have those two things. So at this moment, there are two events that come to mind for me that have that level of prestige right now. And that's USDGC, obviously, and then the European Open. Now, just because the field is weaker does not necessarily take away from the prestige of the event. There are There is a reason why there are so many, like almost, like definitely thousands of fans out at Nokia every year. And that's because disc golf in Finland and Sweden, out there in Scandinavia, is treated such more professionally of the higher level of integrity than it is out here you don't see you know spectators running across the fairway while a disc is in flight in europe it just doesn't happen i think it was anthony barella shot round two last weekend that there's a spectator literally running across the fairway while his disc was in the air that's not like a professional look at all you know so i think we have to have a high level of spectator etiquette as well just in general like you know the spectators not being able to like even touch a disc and this is kind of something I touched on the last time I was on, but you know, the European style of golf and the way that they handle things is so special and that makes the sport that much more impressive and professional. So I think there are is a level of prestige out there in disc golf, just you know, across the pond. And we need to take into account those things, you know, the level of professionalism, the manicured fairways, the you know, seamless transitions from par fours to par threes to water carries to mountainous greens and things like that. So I think the bottom line is that there are like events out there that can have the prestige if they're, if the history follows with them. And I think disc golf is getting close, but it's not there quite yet. I will say, um, I didn't, I didn't see that Anthony Brella spectator. Brody, what do you have? 
What do you have to say? Oh, finish your talk. I, I have one thing before. I was going to say, I didn't see that AB situation, but that's hilarious. Um, I will say one of the things that the Masters does brag about a lot is their spectator etiquette. Like the idea that you can set a chair down and they all have their names on the back of the chair and like nobody will touch your chair. Or like there, there's just a few things I saw on that. Um, I will also say to the point of the European thing, um, I do agree with a lot of that. Um, I do think that USDGC and the European Open thrive a lot because there is a yearly focus on those events um, big time. And for Europe, I mean, it is like their event. Like it is like, okay, they're all coming over. Now we're starting to move over there a little more, but it's very, it's very much in the past been like, this is the big European, like the, all the big pros are coming over. So like they roll out the red carpet. Um, yeah, I think that's what, that's what events have to do every year. If they want to be successful and prestigious, they have to be advertised and looked forward to the entire year. And we can't right. do that if we move worlds, A, the time it is, and B, the course it is every year. It just doesn't work that way. So um, if we want to add prestige to that, like we have to look forward to it year round. Yeah. Brody, what were you going to say? I might... It's an interesting talking point here because I'm trying to think of like a public park, like a multi-purpose public park that holds like a very prestigious event. I can't think of one. However, I contradict myself because then you talk about like a football arena or a stadium or a basketball arena, and they have other th events going on there. They have concerts, they have other sports playing there, but the basketball is the main thing or the, f the football game is the main thing there. And then they have other stuff. Additionally, I think a lot of times we play these tournaments in these multi-sport parks, public parks. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, you're throwing over soccer fields in the European Open and you're throwing next to a playground. And does that hurt the prestige a little bit of where yeah. it's like we don't even have, like we're not even playing, you know. Sure. Well, well it's I like when you, speaking of the Masters, like when we've, we were playing college nationals disc golf a few years ago, just mm -hmm. like 20 minutes away from the course and we drove by it. And like I Can't was even shocked look at how much just like in the middle of like a normal town Augusta National. And you was. can't even look in. No, you can't even look. It's you can see the entrance, but that's it. But yeah. when you're on the course, they have like this green fence that lines the outside and they mm -hmm. make it like I was talking to my brother-in-law um about it cuz like we were saying like when you watch that place, it feels like it would be in the middle of like, it's like an enchanted mountains forest. <laughs> like 40 minutes away from everywhere just like in the middle of nowhere because like it makes it feel like to your point Brody like an excluded like yeah, it, it feels mysterious is what I think it is to a certain extent. And that's where I went with the exclusivity thing. It's like, I think that whole feel of even the optics is big. Cause if you, if John Rahm was teeing off and you saw the road that was literally 25 feet away from him behind him, it would kind of immediately taint the view of the masters a little bit, but you don't see that. Uh, now, St. Andrews. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, you got like St. St. Andrews. Andrews. It's a little different vibe history. though. It's a different vibe. Yeah, the history that puts it in there. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. I mean, it is... If you uh, dropped a course in New York City, it would just be kind of like a cool it, spectacle, but it wouldn't it, have prestige. Um, if you if you had a disc golf course that was completely shut off, um, and there are some, like, I think that does automatically... Though, like, in the middle of nowhere. And right. it definitely has, like, at least among co collegiate disc golfers, like, oh, my God, the natties, you know what I mean? Like, it's right. a mysterious place that, like, I think, you know, my, I was talking to my guys earlier, and then... There are Airbnbs on the top of a mountain, like in the middle, of, mm -hmm. literally in the middle of nowhere. I'm sure. Brody I think that's where I'm know. staying currently. Yeah, I'll say Brody's, <laughs> Brody's out there right now. I think I'm literally yeah, yeah, in college like, nationals. Yeah, the, yeah. I really, really hope they keep it at North Cove because that that place is really special. The uh, 
don't talk to your friends about that. Yeah, <laughs> they, news for you. they did announce that it's being moved next year. But uh, no. as, aside from that, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to be done there. I mean, I, I've just been seeing stuff about the Masters. Like, literally, I saw one earlier this week where they were talking about how if you go out there on a Thursday and you see somebody take a divot, the next day that divot will not be there. Like, they are filling them in real time, allegedly. Um, and I had never heard that before, and that's insane to me. Um, also... Throwing it out there, we might just not have a prestigious sport. What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> well, like St. Andrews, we just brought up St. Andrews. That course during the week, you have people out there like having picnics on the course. So what are you? What it's is, just an open. It's an open park, like Memorial. It's literally the same thing, but it's like when the open comes to St. Andrews. They're able just to turn it all the glitz and glamour into it to where. Well, what was St. Andrews first, though? What do you mean? What was it first? Like, was it was it created to be a golf course first? That I don't know. I'm not I entirely thought... sure. I, I, mean, I, I think that's a lot I mean, to do with it. The fact that people, I, I believe, it's always been an, an open park, though. To where and like one one of the days I think is like women's women they have like a women's league or something, and so the whole day is shut down, and the only people who can well, play are women. And the so, bottom. Like, the bottom line is that, you know, it's a time situation, right? Like, disc golf is so young. And so, like, who knows if if we played at a at a certain park for enough years, maybe it would, the sport would grow enough and it would, things would get, like, you can never know when you're talking about the scale of 100 years versus I know, but, like, we need to, I want to interview, like, a pickleball person. Like, is there is there a place, like... Well, pickleball that, is that, also very young. No, I know. That's why it's a good question to be like, is there, is there somewhere where you're like, oh my gosh, like Wimbledon in tennis is very prestigious, right? Yeah. Is there a place like that already in pickleball? Because pickleball is younger than disc golf. Well, so the tough part of pickleball is like, it's its own court. Like, it's very easy to have a, a like pickleball a separated court. space. No, but there it can are, be in a public park. I mean, like, no, no, I know, but I'm saying if they're already saying like, yeah, this place when you go here, it is prestige. Like this is the tournament. This is nuts. Like I have a question. And obviously, history is not the thing that we you know we're making an excuse that we well don't have history. Dustin. Yeah. So my quick question to this would be, and this it's not a major. So I mean, this is a little different because it's not a major. But do you not get that vibe with Maple Hill? Like with all the tradition around that, that place, was, the that eight was holes, the, only... the jumping in the pond, like just the, the way the course looks, knowing the holes, like the holes stick out so much on that. Like you can almost like run through the course in your head and just know what every hole looks like. Like I feel like we do have properties that do have that. It's just, unfortunately for that course, it's not tied to a major. It's just, you know, an elite event or now it's mm -hmm. a playoff event, I guess. So like, I do think we have a little bit of that prestige at certain courses. I think Hill was really and, the one that still yeah. get, stood out for me as far as and, like, showing up there and being like wow mm -hmm. i'm actually like this is sick go ahead john thanks for bringing up wimbledon brody because i think another thing is like the prestige of like i oh, know the trophy or the jack or whatever is that we have the history of everybody that had that before that's why like the wimbledon trophy or the stanley cup even has every single winner engraved on it from the past yeah. so if we have like let's say for the champions cup trophy it's you know the first name on this chris dickerson and then it's whoever is this year and then year after year after year after the, and that adds to prestige of the event as well because the winners get to see the greats that came before right. them. I, yeah, bottom that, you know. Bottom line is things get cooler and more prestigious when they get old. Like you're right. Like at, when you get handed the trophy and there's 30 names on it, it's automatically a heck of a lot cooler because you're seeing history right before your eyes and you're joining it. 
Um, and, and to Dustin's point, I agree. I think there are properties out there that do kind of fit the bill or get closer to fitting the bill. Um, for example, I mean, that Eagles crossing property is nuts. It just happens to be in the middle of nowhere. Um, that might be the downfall there, but like there are properties that are, are much closer. Um, but anyways, enough on that tangent, we could go down that hypothetical road now, forever. The most prestigious tournament open at Austin. I think the W.R. Jackson course, now Now that we know that Champions Cup is permanently W.R. Jackson, I think that's going to be it, too. I, yeah, I think W.R., and there's already some history there. Certainly, um, that major is going to really pick up steam as we go on. Um, going to do our elimination here. Brody and Jonah finished at 12 points. Deuces. Um, we've got the both the three times, Hunter and Dustin, the rematch everybody wanted. Uh, Hunter right now at 15, Dustin at 16. Going into our rapid-fire round. All right, so you guys know the rules. We got three topics here. Um, feel free to take up to a minute on this round. I think that um, thirty seconds can be a little bit quick, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna give enough grace up to to, to a minute here. Um, Dustin, since you are in the lead, would you like to go first or second? I will go first, sir. Okay, Dustin would like to go first. Um, first question here, and this is something that I was kind of curious about as I was at Collegiate Nationals. Um, only saw maybe. A couple lefty players. You never really see a ton of lefty players. I was also sparked because I was watching Austin Turner. He was on one of the uh, higher up cards there this past weekend. And Bro, so my that question shot he threw real quick over the top on that left side that Annie back. That was the crazy. most wild thing, dude. Just, just want to throw that out there real quick. Shout out it was. Um, we've seen some, so we've seen some really good lefties, you know, Austin Turner has had his day in the sun. Certainly, you know, he's kind of coming back now. Chris Clemens always been solid. Um, you go back further, you have Devin Owens back in the day was a very good player. Um, lefties have been prevalent, but you know, when you think about, you know, disc golf compared to, you know, let's just throw baseball as an example that you see a lot of lefties in baseball and there's a lot of different aspects to that and why there are more lefties, you know, the different views while pitching and whatnot. Um, but my question is simply, why don't we see more lefty disc golfers on tour? Um, is this just a matter of statistics? Sure. Could be. Um, or is there more at play here, Dustin? So I think part of it is pure numbers, right? Uh, I was looking it up and apparently only between 10 and 12% of the world's population is left-handed. Um, and so that's going to narrow down the field right away. A neat little side stat, the PGA estimates that only about 5% of PGA Tour members are left-handed. Now, I mm. couldn't find a number for disc offers. That data just doesn't seem to be readily available. But if we're just working off the premise of, like, the average population, that means that, you know, 90% is roughly right-handed. And so that likely applies to players. It's also likely going to apply to course designers. And I do think that a lot of course design from right-handed designers do tend to favor right-handed players. Um, it seems like the best lines on a lot of these courses tend to line up for like righty backhands. Uh, the exception would be like the, you know, sparse amount of courses that are a little bit more forehand heavy um, that maybe you give a little bit more to the lefties. But I do think that lefties typically have to deal with tougher shot shaping for their backhand. Um, it means that they have to be more reliant on a forehand. Like a lot of players can get away with not having one when you're right-handed, but I feel like if you're a lefty and you don't have a forehand, you really run into a lot of trouble. And we know how hard it can be just to have an elite forehand. I mean, you can't name that many elite forehands even amongst right-handed players. Yeah, people have serviceable ones, but like elite is a little bit different. Um, and also, you know about the risk of injury and things of that nature as well when it comes to forehand. So I do think it's a mixture of pure numbers. And I also think it's a mixture of like, average course design and things of that nature. Yeah, very solid points. Hunter, what do you think? 
Well, yeah, so I was doing the math too. And so like Dustin said, about 10% of the world's population is lefty, which would make you think that in, in a pro tour field, about 13 players would be lefty. But I went through the field and counted and I only counted five, about five. I'll give it because I don't know if everyone's lefty, which seemed low. But then I remembered our gracious host, Trevor, who's lefty in most aspects of life. But when it comes to disc golf and throwing sports, righty. Uh, and I think the more I started thinking about it, the more people I know. What do you write with, Trevor? My left hand. How do you swing in golf? Lefty. Okay, so Trevor's lefty in a lot of aspects in life, but he throws righty. And the more I think about it, the more people like that came to mind, especially on the local pro level. I think a reason for this is so many disc golfers come from swinging sports, where if you're lefty and you swing lefty, it's more of a natural right-handed back backhand motion. Now, why is that not true for righties? I'm glad you asked, because I had the same question. Well, studies have shown that lefties are more likely to be slightly ambidextrous than righties because we live in a right-handed world. Doors are on the right, so on and so forth. People are trying to be forced to be righties. So left-handed players, more comfortable with their right hand than right-handed people are comfortable with their left hand. So I think that that actually plays a big aspect, because how many closet lefties do we have on tour that we don't know because <laughs> they're throwing with their right hand? On the side note, though, course design also definitely plays a part in this. Yeah, I, that's actually a valid point. Um... I, I, so yeah, to Hunter's point, and actually you did, I, I didn't agree with you, Hunter, but then I did agree with you because you actually did have a good counterpoint there. I, I am a right-hand dominant person, but I do, I do right left-handed, which is very weird. And then I swing a baseball bat and a golf club lefty. I played hockey lefty as well. Now in those sports, that's not super uncommon, but I do think to Hunter's point, you know, I played all those different swinging sports first. You know, that does, but I mean, ultimately the reason why I throw disc golf right-handed is because I played baseball and I threw a righty. Um, but there, there's a point to be made there. Um, and I, and the ambidextrous thing is interesting too. I also think, um, you know, a big part of it too, is like Dustin mentioned the forehand rely, like having to rely on the forehand so heavily is a big deal. And don't forget the forehands and backhands don't really fly the same. You know, they don't really push quite the same. They have a different flight. And I think that affects the lefties too. Cause you might say, oh, well, it's a righty backhand to throw your forehand. Well, you're not going to get the same flight and also throwing the same distance. A lot of times can be demanding on your arm. Um, so good points on both sides. I think it's super interesting though, because like you just really don't see, like we need some representation. We had Phil Mickelson in golf, you know, the, the ultimate lefty dominant golfer with that great run he's had. Um, we need that in disc golf. We need some lefty representation. Honor, I would claim that closet lefty intellectual property right now. <laughs> yeah, what, what's that? Where did that voice come from? Yeah, where did that, that voice from come from? Far <laughs> from the grave? What? Um, I can hear this. I was gonna claim that closet. All right, so right now we've got Dustin still with a one-point lead, 1918 over Hunter, going into our next topic. I think this is one that was really like I'm kind of split on. I think it's very interesting. Um, the Music City Open trophy was notably a Gibson guitar, a nice Gibson guitar, as fact-checked by Connor, our, our local uh, music guy. And um, so that was cool. Now, the question is, clearly that is a, a more expensive trophy, um, but... Should disc golf lean into unique trophies? Because we've seen this happen quite often now where like the best trophies we see in our sport, I think is I can say this very confidently that any of the trophies that have like looked really decent have been unique trophies. You know, we've seen like wood carvings and such. Um, you know, should disc golf lean into these unique trophies or should they be using budgets or just alloc allocating more to the budget to go for a more classy, traditional looking award like we've seen in most other sports? You know, what do we think about that, Hunter? 
Yeah, I think lean into unique trophies when it makes sense. Like the Music City Open, a guitar makes perfect sense. Music City Open might feel a little weird if you had a beautiful glass trophy at the end. But I think that you got to match the prestige with the prestige of the event. Like USDGC, it would be kind of weird if they just like won the most prestigious title in our sport, many would say, including myself, and then they get a guitar. So I think you got to lean into it where it makes sense. Um, but some events is going to make more sense to have a more traditional looking trophy. I did want to just kind of go through a quick TD checklist. Um, so TDs kind of understood where they might go wrong. So if you're a TD and you're finding yourself thinking, I could probably make that myself. Stop. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> if you're a TD and you're thinking, I'm not paying that much for my trophy. I bet a buddy could just die a disc. Stop. You're doing it wrong. If you're a TD and you're like, now, what if we took this trophy and we added change to this? Let me go to Michael's <laughs> and pick some up. Stop. You're doing it wrong. So I think we just got to be a little aware of the perception of these trophies before we hand them out. Fair enough. Good checklist. Dustin, what do you think? Um... I think it comes down to what the players enjoy most and what will stand out for a good reason. Obviously, we've had some trophies that stood out for very wrong reasons in the past for being like tacky or not up to the snuff of the prestige of the event. Um, but I think having special trophies like the guitar for MCO or we had like the, like the belt buckle and hat from, from Austin. They had that huge black bear trophy at the preserve um, that you can kind of associate with the preserve. Uh, it, it, and that's the big thing for me is that you get to associate the item with the event. And, and I think it's really cool when you can do that because it goes back to our discussion earlier about creating tradition in the sport when you have these unique trophies that are tied to an event. That's one way to create tradition around it. And then you have like the photo op where they're like hoisting that trophy. It creates memories for everyone, the players, the fans, the event itself. Um, I think it's also cool when you can like have like a larger item that stays at the course or with the event that everyone's name gets put on it and you kind of build that history. But then you also get to give something small away that the player gets to keep forever. So I think the mm -hmm. preserve, they got a ring or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. But then they had like the big bear trophy that they held for the photo op. So yeah, I think that as long as it's done tastefully and it's not tacky, I think there's like a great opportunity there for these unique trophies to kind of like get to like build tradition around an event. You know what I think it's closest to is bowl game trophies. They have things like you'll win like the battle axe or stuff like that. That's where it's most, uh, it, it really connects for me. And I think that there's a fine line. I think that, you know, Dustin's right. There's a very fine line between tacky and not tacky with these trophies. Because if you give people the reins, like people love the unique trophies, you know, somebody's going to win a stand mixer at some point or like who knows what they're going to win. KitchenAid. Right. But like the guitar, I think cool. Obviously it matches up with the theme. And I think for major tournaments, you don't need, you don't necessarily need the trophy to do the work for you because like you're, you should be able to picture a major tournament and picture the trophy a little bit. But I think for other events, it's a very easy way to add recognizability. Like, oh, Music Studio Open. Yeah, that's the one where they win the guitar. Like, that, that is something that helps. So I think that those smaller tournaments, well, not smaller, but the Pro Tour tournaments that aren't majors, you know, that's something they can lean into. But it's just that line of like, okay, what is, what is like very notable, very much like people are going to recognize it, but it's also not just crazy and tacky. So, uh, yeah, I, I, think I, I think I'm leaning that way as well, though. Um, all right, going to our final subject, Dustin's still up one point. Um, and this is uh, a question that, you know, I was kind of thinking about, you know, I was doing the question from uh, the Champions Cup for MPO. And I was kind of like, well, FPO, this question is very simply Kristen Tatar is the answer. And I was like, okay, let's look at the field. We were going to probably be doing this to the end of time, it seems like. Let's look at the field right now. And, you know, it seems like Paige and Kat have, have kind of begun to show their true colors. We kind of know what to expect out of them week to week. It seems like this at this time. Um, there is a lot of players, though, that are still newer to the FPO division, kind of rising up, um, young. 
So my question is, which FPO player will be the one that will eventually rise up and challenge Kristen in the future, or is she not even on tour yet? Dustin. Yeah, so, so this is an interesting way it's written, because obviously Paige can still do it, because she just did it at Austin. So, I mean, the veteran players can still do it, but if we're looking at the future... I think there's several names you could look at that have potential. So Holland Hanley comes up first. I think she has an incredibly complete game in a short amount of time and has a very strong work ethic. And I think once she gets more experience, she will be able to challenge Krista Moore. She's already been pretty consistently placing within the top five, as is. Another player very similar, I think, when it comes to having a complete game and being a very strong athlete is Ella Hansen. Uh, she also has had some several big finishes, just hasn't quite got the win yet. But she's still very young in her disc golf career, um, similar to Hanley. Holland and she has like that strong forehand. She has the complete game, which is what sets Kristen apart, that she has the forehand, the putting, the backhand. She has everything. You're seeing players like Holland and, and Ella be able to do that as well. I think it's sad that we can't see Valerie Mandahano play this year because I feel like she was a big contender last year. She had two elite wins last year as well as a silver event and a lot of top fives. So she was a player coming up that looked like she could challenge. We saw Macy Valadez this year, very young on tour herself, and she's out there putting up some pretty big results. And then Caroline Henderson just came out of freaking nowhere this year and like had a big event. And I think we're starting to see the situation where you're having like collegiate level athletes from like softball and stuff like that in the women's division start picking up disc golf and embracing it more so it becomes more mainstream. And I think mm -hmm. that will continue to happen. Like, you know, the, these types of players come in who can translate those skills to disc golf and be competitive. It's just yeah. about gaining the actual tournament experience and, like, learning the game of disc golf. But, yeah, it's out there. Yeah, definitely a lot of names, a lot of really good athletes. I think you're right. This is kind of that flood era of the FPO field where you're going to see really good athletes seeing how quickly they could potentially rise up the ranks and jump in. Uh, Hunter, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely hard to tell. Uh, there's definitely a lot of players out there that have potential, but at this point, they just kind of lack consistency. I mean, you have like Haley King looks like she has everything she would need to win consistently, yet she doesn't. Holland Handley, Ella Hansen, et cetera. But the player most primed currently to take over, without a doubt, is Valerie Mandahano. Uh, people, I think, sometimes forget about her when looking at all of this. She's a proven tour winner. She's in her early 20s. Kristen Tatar is in her 30s. Paige Pierce, also in her 30s. Katrina Allen, upper 30s. This is Valerie Mandahano's field if she wants it. She's already a proven tour winner. She's already won off tour. She's already won M World. She is consistent. She has the complete game. And I think that this is kind of her tour. There's definitely going to be an influx. This is the flood stage for FPO. There's definitely going to be more players that come in. But I think this is Valerie Mandahano's tour of the future to do what she wants with. Yeah, I, I think Val is a, a solid player. The only thing I question with Val is her arm strength, um, You know whether that'll continue to develop or not, because I think that's the biggest thing that holds her back. And I do think it, as Hall and Hanley, you know, players like that continue to develop just really serious athletes can throw very far. They're going to be tough to beat down the I stretch. I think the other thing for Valerie is like she doesn't have the same kind of forehand that a Holland Hanley and Ella and a Kristen Tatar. Right. Has. I think that can also harm her a little bit. She, well. She's smooth. I think she'll be around yeah, for a while. And she does oh, know yeah, how to I win. Someone how to win. It's true. It is true. And that you, you are safe as saying, Val, when she has been a proven winner, whereas, you know, we have some other talented athletes like Haley King is kind of the model for like what Holland Hanley could be where like Haley King looks like she has everything now she is a proven winner she has won events but not nearly at the rate that we thought she would um no, so if you look at just her game you would think she's probably the best FPO player right face the planet right she she wins but she doesn't win nearly as much as you would think yeah it, there's certainly an anomaly there um but that's going to wrap it up dustin is the winner today by 1.25 to 24 uh he gets his revenge he is our first four-time winner uh you can see the the graphic now updated to, to the four-time trophy 
Um, great show there. Very, a lot of hypotheticals, a lot of interesting things to discuss. Let us know in the comment section your opinions, especially on some of those uh, really open-ended topics. I'd love to hear uh, all of your feedback. Uh, but thanks once again for watching Debate Night. Dustin, do you have anything to say? Uh, no, just uh, great to be involved. And we had like a bit of an off week last week, but it's good to be back and uh, enjoy talking with all you folks about these interesting topics. I think, it's, I think this was a cool episode where we, we, we weren't like just following, you know, typical storylines. We were actually taking some like bigger picture items and, and having some fun with it. So, yeah, appreciate it always. And obviously, you know, Hunter, it's always fun competing against you in the finals. You know, the rivalry continues. And so we're building our own tradition here on Debate Night. You know what I mean? So <laughs> Unlike, any other. Unlike any Unlike other. Unlike any other. <laughs> um, let us know in the comments, too, if you enjoy the more open-ended hypothetical topics. I think they create a lot of really cool prompts and discussion, um, something that I like to write in a lot. And there's an infinite amount of them. So that's always great, too. Uh, but we'll be back next week with another episode of Debate Night. And we'll see you then. Is the